possibly the most famous passage that God has left us. But let me start. Next Saturday, there's going to be a quiz, by the way, and I'm going to be the quiz master. But in that quiz, I'm never going to ask you as easy questions as I'm going to ask you now. I'm going to give you three quotes, and I just want you to tell me who they're from. That's one small step for man, but one giant leap for mankind. Neil Armstrong. What about this one? There's a special one for Andrew Miller here. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. Margaret Thatcher. And what about this one? Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. Winston Churchill. Yeah. So all these three quotes, particularly the first and the third one, are iconic of times in history, famous, iconic times in history for humankind. The second one, maybe not for humankind, but for definitely us living in Britain, Thatcher, when she said that about the uh, economy and her not turning. It uh, is still iconic for us and makes a difference to our lives. But what I want to say here, in this passage here, this quoted, Jesus, in verses... 19 and 20, this quote here is the most important thing that anybody has said in the history of humankind. What he says here just drops an absolute bomb into human history. It changes it forever. And Winston Churchill was reminded of this, you know. Churchill's chief military assistant, as they were driving uh, in Churchill's car, as he was preparing this speech that he was going to give to the commons in 1930, 1940, sorry, his, uh, his chief military assistant, Pug Ismay, they were going through the car, and Winston Churchill was relating this, this to him, and he said, never in the history of mankind has so many owed so much to so few. And this Pug Ismay, he said, well, what about Jesus? Good old pug, said Winston, and he changed his speech immediately to never in the field of human conflict. He knew himself how important these words, what Jesus did and said, was. So as we begin to dig deep into our passage, let's now set the scene. Last week, in the last chapter, Andrew was talking and in this preceding chapter, Jesus is telling about the end times when judgment will come to Israel and when Jesus comes again in his second coming. He's talking about end times. And there'll be punishment when Jesus comes in power, glory, and authority. And we're to be kept on guard, to keep watch. And then chapter 21 finishes with these verses. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives, and all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. And that's where we start our passage. All the people came, and I can't be literally, but it must mean that many, many people who were in Jerusalem at the time were coming to listen to what Jesus was saying and teaching. So how many people were there in Jerusalem at this time during Passover? Well, we can take a fairly accurate stab at this. 
because the Jewish historian Josephus, in his writings, he tells about Cestius, who was a Roman governor of Palestine, about 20 to 30 years after Jesus died, so not long, ago, not long after at all. And what he did, Nero was emperor then, and he wanted to tell Nero, no, this Jewish faith, these Jewish people, they're something, they're not, it's not a small thing. It's something to be remembering. Something, they're, they're not small fry. You need to be aware of them. And what he did, he took a census of the amount of lambs that were slaughtered on one particular Passover. And if Josephus is right in his, in his writings, which we think they are, on this particular Passover, 256,000 lambs were sacrificed in Jerusalem on that time. Now, at this time, when Jesus was around, the law was that to celebrate a Passover, a minimum of 10 people must be there to celebrate a meal, this Passover meal. So you're looking at about minimum 2.7 million people in Jerusalem at this time. And if all of the people or most of the people are coming to listen to Jesus, it's going to have an influence on them, isn't it? The, the people who are there at the moment, the chief priests, teachers of the law, they're going to be worried about what Jesus is saying, how many people Jesus is going to have an influence on. Everybody came because the Jewish Passover was a very important celebration in the Jewish calendar. Every male Jew of age, if they lived within 15 miles of Jerusalem, were by law ordered to be at Jerusalem for this Passover meal. So what is the Passover? Well, we'll find that a little later. But at this moment, I just want to tell you what it isn't. And someone has called the Christian Passover in these times to be, when we read the Bible, we see something that we don't like in it and we quickly pass over it. We don't take any notice of it. It's not that. I can tell you it's not that. So I think as we look at our passage here, we see two plans of action being put into action. Two plans being put into action. The first plan, in the first few verses we see, is the plan of destruction, I want to call it. And there's three protagonists here. The plan of destruction for Jesus, to get rid of him. The first protagonists we see are the chief priests and the teachers of the law. The upholders, enforcers, and protectors of the covenant given by God to Moses for the Israelites, his chosen people, including these Passover celebrations, priestly duties of the temple like sacrifices and obedience to the Mosaic law, the entire Mosaic law, which we find in Genesis to Deuteronomy. And as we've heard, Jesus was a threat to their own teaching and authority, telling them they had got things terribly wrong. Remember how he accused them when he went into the holy temple of making it a den of robbers, a safe house for criminals, a place where they could feel safe in God's house. So that's the first set of protagonists. The second, the evil one himself, Satan. See, we read, we read here in our passage, Satan entered into, into Judas. So this plan of destruction is not only on the small scale, it's on the cosmic spiritual scale. And that needs to be emphasized. See, way back in Luke, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we hear of Jesus, after he's been baptized, being tempted in the, de- in, in the wilderness by Satan. And Luke writes after this, When the devil had finished all this tempting, 
he left him until an opportune time. This is the next time we read of Satan in Luke's Gospel. Luke wants to make it clear, this is his opportune time. This is when this plan of getting rid of Jesus, getting rid of his salvation plan, can come to fruition. And then the third protagonist, obviously Judas. Satan entered Judas. He betrays Jesus. So on the small scale, providing the chief priests and the teachers of the law with what they need, an opportunity to arrest Jesus when the crowds aren't around. And they're delighted. One commentator says they've got unholy glee at hearing this. And then on the cosmic scale, the devil uses Judas for his purposes. The opportunity for Jesus to be accused. Satan is the accuser. The opportunity by Jesus getting arrested to be accused of being a rebel, a false prophet, a fake messiah, and a blasphemer who is endangering Israel's laws and dishonoring God. And it's very noticeable from these next few passages, next few chapters after this, Luke makes it very clear and makes a great attempt to prove and to tell us how innocent Jesus is. And what we might be tempted to do here is let Judas off the hook. Satan entered Judas, saying he was somehow a puppet, just a puppet of the devil. But it's important to remember that the devil just cannot enter you or me or Judas. We have to let him in. I think one commentator says, there's not a handle to our hearts from the outside. We've got to open them from the inside to let him in. Remember what Jesus writes, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Not that he might, he will flee. We are to resist the devil. Judas obviously didn't do that. And that's the first plan, the the plan of destruction, to get rid of Jesus. That's being put into force here in our passage. And then we have the second plan, the plan of salvation. See, just like the plan of destruction, this plan is on a cosmic scale. And this salvation plan is just that. It's a plan. It's planned. Jesus foreknew it. God foreknew it. It's been set in place from long ago. Remember Peter and John, in verses 8 to 13, Peter and John instructed to go and make preparations for the Passover meal, and they find things just as Jesus had told them. The way had been made for them. It had been prepared. And it reminds us of when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, sent two disciples then to get that donkey's colt to send him in. And those disciples found it just as he had told them. This journey into Jerusalem by Jesus and ultimately to his own death was planned, set in stone long ago. So what does Jesus think of this plan of his death? In verses 14 to 17 in our passage we see he eagerly awaited it. Jesus couldn't wait to suffer for you or for me. He was eager because he knew that the salvation plan that would perversely incorporate the devil's plan of destruction of his own body was now only hours away. 
And as we look at our passage, we can't get away from these verses without seeing that the Passover meal is what Jesus eagerly desires to eat. And that it will only find fulfillment when the kingdom of God comes. Let's read 16 to 18 again. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, I will not drink it again. Drink from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So this passage, it's saturated with this Passover, with the Passover meal. If you look in these verses, verses 1 to 14, Luke explicitly mentions Passover six times and alludes to it another twice. That's eight times in 14 verses that Luke mentions the Passover. And Jesus links the Passover to this meal. How is, how is it going to be fulfilled then by Jesus? Well, we need to look at what the Passover was. And to do that, if you want to, by all means turn to Exodus chapter 12. And we're going to look at what this Passover was. Well, this Passover, it was an event that took place 1,300 years before Jesus. It took place in the history of Israel, God's chosen people. It happened in Egypt after the Israelites had been held captive in slavery there for 430 years. And they cried out to the Lord, and he heard their prayers, and he sent on Egypt, can you remember the plagues of locusts, gnats, frogs, hail? He turned their water into blood. And more still, but Pharaoh refused to let them go from slavery. So finally, we get to this Passover passage in chapter 12. And we see, if you've got it in front of you, in verse 3, we read, Each man, this is God's decree to the Israelites, each man must take a lamb. In verse 5, the animals must be year-old males without defect. Now surely that's got to be ringing bells here. A spotless male. And surely it is. If we read... Uh, in 1 Peter 18, this is what we read. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed by the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And in verse 20 we read, He was chosen before the creation of the world. Yes, this salvation plan was in place before the world was in place. Again, we read this. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. This is how Jesus is fulfilling this Passover meal. In verse 2, we read something is interesting. In verse 2, God says to the Israelites, From now on, when you take this Passover meal, this will be the very start of your year. It will be a new beginning for them, a new start of history for them. So it is with us. When we become Christians, we start immediately all over again. And the very day we put our trust in Jesus Christ, 
We are born again to a new life and a new calendar. We are a new creation. In verse 6, all of the Passovers were to be slain. The death of a spotless lamb would spare lives. And how? Well, in verse 7 we read, Put the blood of the lamb on your door frames on the sides and above. And in verse 8, you're to eat the lamb with bitter herbs, reminding them of the bitter years of slavery. With unleavened bread, because their rescue would be quick. They wouldn't have time for the dough to rise. Their rescue would be quick. Plus in verse 11 we read, Eat it in haste. Eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt, with your sandals on your feet, with your staff in hand. Be ready. Be ready. Remember what Jesus was saying in the temple about God's second coming of judgment. Be ready. Be prepared. Be on guard. You will come like a thief in the night. In verse 12, this is where we read, So God comes. He passes through Egypt. He passes judgment and punishment on the slave masters of his chosen people, killing all of their firstborn children and animals. He passes through Egypt. He passes judgment. But he passes over his chosen people, the Israelites. When he looks and sees the blood of a sacrificed, spotless lamb. I mean, I've heard this said, perhaps here by a a preacher, who else but God could see scarlet blood in pitch black as a protection? Who else could see it? Only God. So when we all have our day of judgment and stand before God and are found as followers of Christ... God will not see our sin that requires punishment, but he will see his son's perfect sacrificial blood covering us. He will look on us, but see the blood of his son. His death has set us free by the plan set forth before the creation of the world. What a wonderful, wonderful God we have. This happened. The Israelites were then set free by Pharaoh. They were allowed to go. And they were to remember this rescue from slavery by the mighty hand of God every year by having this Passover meal that Jesus is having now. It's still going on 1,300 years later. And it still goes on today in the Jewish communities. They have a Passover meal. Also, such an important event. God gave the Israelites the Sabbath to rest and remember their time of rescue from slavery. In Deuteronomy, we read, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commands you to observe the Sabbath day, to rest. Such an important, the most important thing in the Israelite history. Rescue from sin. Rescue from slavery. But this isn't the full picture. You see, yeah, we can, we can feel happy and relieved that we will not be found wanting when we stand to face God in that day of judgment, whenever that be. But does that really excite us? It must make us feel relieved, but does it make us res- 
excite us? Does it really excite us? No, because what should really excite us, what we should remember was God rescued them from slavery but led them somewhere else. The Passover was the beginning to an end. God rescued them from slavery and took them to the promised land, led them to the promised land. A land flowing in abundance, a land flowing with milk and honey. So Jesus' fulfillment of the Passover is to rescue us from a life of slavery, a life of slavery to sin, and to lead us to his promised land, eternal dwelling and relationship with God in his abundant kingdom. See, just like Moses led the people out of Jesus, out of Jesus, out of Egypt, into the promised land, so all who are in Christ follow him to where he has gone. Paul writes this in Ephesians, When he ascended on high, you took many captives in your train. Talking of Psalm 68 and linking it to Jesus. Another analogy we could use here, talking to particularly the ladies here in the room, particularly maybe Liz over there with with baby. Jesus is the head of the body. He's called the head of the body. And when he ascends into heaven, he breaks out into a new kingdom. It's just like being born. The head comes through into a new world into a new kingdom. And wherever the head goes, the body must follow. Just think of a baby being born into that new world. This is what we can think of Jesus here. Jesus is taking us as the head into this new kingdom, if we are in him. There's another little interesting passage. In, In Joshua 5, we read that the Israelites are just about to come into the promised land, or just in the promised land, And we hear the Passover spoke of again. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped in Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, the promised land. Unleavened bread and roasted grain. And when they did that, the manna from heaven stopped that very day. Another picture of Jesus. Jesus was around his disciples in that time. The Passover comes. Jesus dies. Jesus called himself the bread of heaven. He was taken away. That very day that Jesus is taken away, the Spirit comes from the kingdom of heaven, the promised land for us. We can now live on that. We can now begin to have the wonderful produce of that promised land that we are going to so just as God as we look back to our passage just as God gave the Israelites a meal to remember the most significant event in their history now Jesus gives us and his followers a meal to remember the most important event of human history ever Verse 19, this is my body, talking of the bread, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
This is my body given for you. Doesn't that make John 3.16, that famous passage, does that give that a little bit more meaning? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, one and only son. He didn't give Jesus to earth to perform miracles and tell us wonderful stories of God. He did do that, but he gave him. He gave him to be broken to us all. This, in verse 20, this is the new covenant. The new covenant. And these are the words that are so explosive in human history. This is the new covenant. God is introducing, at this point, something new. He's introducing something new into history. And because there is now a new covenant, it means that the other one is by default old. It means that the other one is complete, superseded by this new covenant Jesus is bringing. Remember Jesus talked about you can't put new wine into old wineskins. They can't take it. They'll burst. Jesus was talking about the new covenant to come, coming into old wineskins. The old covenant can't take the new covenant. The new covenant is superseding it. So what was the old one all about? Basically, obey my commands, said God, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. Something that just cannot be done. Cannot be done by anyone but Jesus, that perfect human. So sacrifices had to be made to atone for the people, to make them right in this old covenant with God, within the temple system and his priests. What did Jesus say? One greater than the temple is here. Talking about himself. He's superseding the temple. When Jesus died, the temple curtain was torn in two, showing that access to God was now made through him, not through the temple. And also, Jesus talking about the new temple himself. When it, will be when it is destroyed, will be raised again in three days. Talking about himself. Showing his victory over death and Satan's cosmic plan. In the Old Covenant, the Israelites were God's chosen people set apart by acts of circumcision with blood. In the New Covenant, all who have faith in this wonderful plan of salvation from every tribe, every tongue, every nation are God's chosen people it's open to all that's just how, how explosive this act is in history it's open to everybody who will believe in what jesus doing here fulfills the passover so now we're not under the slavery of obedience to the law that cannot be kept which makes us slaves to sin because that because what because that is doing what God doesn't want us to do. And how burdensome it is. Slaves to a constant burden of good works that can never be fulfilled, never be done. But no, no. But we're saved by God's grace, his unmerited favor, his mercy, his compassion, forgiveness and steadfast love, redeemed from slavery. By nothing we could ever do ourselves, but by him. He's done it all. 
What a plan of salvation. What a burden off. Remember Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. In Hebrews, we read, and it sums it up. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. And those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under that first covenant. We're set free. I know I've been rabbiting on, but before I wrap up, we need to take heed of a warning here. In our passage, it's bookended by Judas. It's not, not only mentions him at the start, Jesus mentions him at the end. Luke mentions him at the end as well. To not be under the new covenant is to be under a curse. Jesus says, woe to that man. Anybody who does not see Jesus as the fulfillment of the Passover and take that upon himself and feed on our Lord and drink and remember him is under a curse of death. Woe to him. A death sentence apart from God. It's a warning to us all. Judas was one of the twelve. He was a follower of Jesus. By Anybody who looked would see him as a follower of Jesus. He was amongst them. He listened to every word Jesus said. He saw near enough every miracle Jesus did. Yet his his heart was hard. He didn't want Jesus as Lord. He didn't resist the temptations when they came. He wanted Jesus out of the way so he could have his own old way back. I think we can put it two ways here. We can either, when we stand before God, which could come at any time, like a thief in the night, be covered by the blood of the Lamb when God looks at us. Or, we can stand before God and have that very blood on our hands. Doesn't that make you think about the urgency of sharing this fantastic, wonderful news of our Savior. So as we think about this simple meal and follow his command to remember him as our Passover lamb, our Savior that leads us right into the presence of God, later on when we take this, we'll examine ourselves, repent of any outstanding sins and come and eat and drink with joyful and worshiping hearts. Let's conclude now by praying and remembering Just how glorious a plan this is. And in just what a glorious place our Passover lamb is now. And where he's leading us to. As we pray, let's pray now. And I'll read a passage in Revelation 5. So Heavenly Father, we remember just where, where Jesus is now. And just how glorious he is. And just where we're heading. And they sang a new song saying... You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain 
And with your blood, you purchase for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice were there saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen.